So the tabernacle is teaching here, and this chapter is teaching here. It is reminding us that salvation from fear and death and the devil is only the beginning. Ultimately, Old Testament and New, salvation is unto God. Welcome to Into the Word with Paul Carter. I'm your host, Woody Woodland. As we come to the end of the book of Exodus, we come to the end of salvation, Old Testament and New. Salvation is not just from fear and death and sickness. It is always ultimately to something, or rather, to someone. Salvation in the Bible is unto God. The end goal is for us to be returned to ourselves, returned to our calling, and returned to our Creator and Father. And here to tell us more about that today is our Bible teacher at Into the Word, Pastor Paul Carter. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. If you have your Bible with you, I'd love for you to open it now to Exodus chapter 40. This is a very special chapter. In a sense, this chapter is the fulfillment of Exodus 29, 45 to 46, when God said, I will dwell among the people of Israel and will be their God, and they shall know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of the land of Egypt, that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord, their God. Now, notice the word that in the middle of verse 46. God saved them so as to dwell among them. Salvation is always unto God. It's not just from bondage, though it is that. But more than that, it is unto God. God. Remember, J. Alec Machir said, the tabernacle could make a strong bid to be the greatest of all biblical visual aids, closed quote. So the tabernacle is teaching here, and this chapter is teaching here. It is reminding us that salvation from fear and death and the devil is only the beginning. Ultimately, Old Testament and New, salvation is unto God. The Bible as a whole ends on that note in Revelation 21, verses 1 to 3. It says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. Closed quote. Same ending as the one we're seeing here. The people were set free from terrible bondage. They were fed and cared for in a desert land. They were given a law and taught how to live as a saved people. They were given dignity. They were disciplined, chastened, corrected, and forgiven. And now they have it all. They have the Lord dwelling in the midst of them as their God. That is the end. That is the point. And that is the climax of this salvation story Thanks be to God. Hear now the word of the Lord, beginning at verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, 
On the first day of the first month, you shall erect the tabernacle of the tent of meeting, and you shall put in it the ark of the testimony, and you shall screen the ark with the veil, and you shall bring in the table and arrange it, and you shall bring in the lampstand and set up its lamps, and you shall put the golden altar for incense before the ark of the testimony, and set up the screen for the door of the tabernacle. You shall set the altar of burnt offering before the door of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting, and place the basin between the tent of meeting and the altar, and put water in it, and you shall set up the court all around, and hang up the screen for the gate of the court. In verses 1 to 8, which we've just read, God officially commands Moses to erect the tabernacle in much the same way that the mayor of a town might give the official command to cut the ceremonial ribbon, so here the word goes out and the work begins. God commands the tabernacle to be erected. And also in verses 9 to 11, he gives a similar command for the tabernacle and its furnishings to be anointed. Verse 9, Then you shall take the anointing oil and anoint the tabernacle and all that is in it, and consecrate it and all its furniture, so that it may become holy. You shall also anoint the altar of burnt offering and all its utensils, and consecrate the altar so that the altar may become most holy. You shall also anoint the basin and its stand, and consecrate it. In verses 12 to 15, God commands the priests to be anointed. He says, Then you shall bring Aaron and his sons to the entrance of the tent of meeting and shall wash them with water and put on Aaron the holy garments and you shall anoint him and consecrate him that he may serve me as priest. You shall bring his sons also and put coats on them and anoint them as you anointed their father that they may serve me as priests and their anointing shall admit them to a perpetual priesthood throughout their generations. So those are the official instructions. And as we see in verses 16 to 33, Moses executed those instructions precisely. Verse 16, This Moses did according to all that the Lord commanded him, so he did. In the first month, in the second year, on the first day of the month, the tabernacle was erected. Now let's pause here. That date is significant. Nahum Sarnas says, helpfully, the tabernacle is to be erected just two weeks short of the first anniversary of the exodus from Egypt and exactly nine months since arriving at Sinai. This is New Year's Day, a date which forges another link with the creation narrative, closed quote. So this is a sort of new creation. That's the point. It's a new day, a new start for God's people. And of course, there are several of these new starts in the Bible. Noah was a new start. Abraham was a new start. And this is a new start. But as Bible readers know, each of these Old Testament new starts eventually ended in a new fall and a new disaster. And each time God picked up the pieces and provided for atonement, and reinvigorated the covenant enterprise. But by the end of the Old Testament, you're starting to feel as if what we really need here is not just a new start. We need a new heart. 
And so in the later prophetic writings, that's what you start to hear about. A new start, yes, but also a new heart. And of course, that prepares us for what Jesus says in John 3, 3. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. This was a new start, and it was a good day, and it was a great grace. Hey, Pastor Paul, I want to jump in here if I can. I've never noticed that the completion of the tabernacle actually happens on New Year's Day, according to the biblical calendar. I don't know why I didn't notice that, because the text says, in the first month in the second year on the first day of the month, the tabernacle was erected. So first month, first day of the month is New Year's Day. I love that little detail. And it does kind of open up the fuller significance of this text. We're supposed to see this as an anticipation of the new creation, are we not? Uh, This is like an illustration in advance of the new heavens and the new earth, right? Yeah, absolutely. We've said a few times now, quoting J. Alec Matier, that the tabernacle is the greatest of all visual aids. It is a story and a picture that is revealing to us how things ought to be and how things will be at some point again in the future. It is, like we've said a few times now, both a picture of and a portal to a whole other world, a better world, the world that was and the world that will be again someday. So again, if I'm putting all these pictures together in the right way, the Bible is saying that in the new creation, in the world as it will be restored and renewed one day, God will dwell in our midst, and we human beings, those of us who have been made into a royal priesthood through faith in Jesus Christ, will serve him as sons and daughters, going in and out before him, and mediating blessings throughout all the cosmos. This is kind of a big idea, right? Like, is is that? But is that the basic idea? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's it exactly. For, For just a moment in this picture, we have perfectly obedient human beings, dressed as princes, but serving with kindness and humility, moving back and forth between the king of the universe and the surrounding creation. It is eerily reminiscent of the Garden of Eden stories, right? Where where Adam and Eve walked with God in the cool of the evening breezes. They met with God and then they ruled over all creation. This is a snapshot of that picture, that, that ideal restored. But as you say, it's also an anticipation of when this ideal will be real, when it will not be a fleeting snapshot, but rather a lasting and enduring reality. It looks back to Genesis 1 to 2, but it also looks forward to Revelation 21 to 22. Think of how similar this picture here is to what we see at the very end of the Bible. In Revelation chapter 21, verses 1 to 3, it says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. Close quote. Now, here's a pretty amazing fun fact. The Greek word translated there in the English as dwell, so that's in in verse 3 of Revelation 21, as dwell is actually the word for tent or tabernacle. So it literally says that at the renewal of all things in the new heavens and the new earth, God will once again 
tabernacle with his people. He will be in the midst of them, and they will come in and out before him. So, so yes, Exodus 40 is very much a picture of the world that was and the world that will be once again because of the redemption that is ours through Christ. <laughs> wow. Now I regret not noticing that New Year's Day thing before but because I feel like I've missed out on a whole layer of meaning here. But I'm glad I'm seeing it now, and thanks for pointing it out. Let's jump back into the text now at verse 18. Moses erected the tabernacle. He laid its bases and set up its frames and put in its poles and raised up its pillars. And he spread the tent over the tabernacle and put the covering of the tent over it as the Lord had commanded Moses. He took the testimony and put it into the ark and put the poles on the ark and set the mercy seat above on the ark. And he brought the ark into the tabernacle and set up the veil of the screen, and screened the ark of the testimony, as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put the table in the tent of meeting on the north side of the tabernacle, outside the veil, and arranged the bread on it before the Lord, as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put the lampstand in the tent of meeting opposite the table on the south side of the tabernacle, and set up the lamps before the Lord, as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put the golden altar in the tent of meeting before the veil and burned fragrant incense on it, as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put in place the screen for the door of the tabernacle, and he set the altar of burnt offering at the entrance of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting and offered on it the burnt offering and the grain offering, as the Lord had commanded Moses. He set the basin between the tent of meeting and the altar and put water in it for washing, with which Moses and Aaron and his sons washed their hands and their feet. When they went into the tent of meeting and when they approached the altar, they washed as the Lord commanded Moses. And he erected the court around the tabernacle and the altar and set up the screen of the gate of the court. So Moses finished the work. Now, I mentioned in an earlier episode that seven times in chapter 39 and seven more times in chapter 40, we hear some version of that phrase, as the Lord commanded Moses. The emphasis is on the precise obedience of Moses and the people in following the instructions of the Lord. And that is intended to forge a connection in our brains with the content that we're about to read now in verse 34. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle throughout all their journeys. Whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out till the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and fire was in it by night, in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys." Again, it would be hard to miss the point being made here. There is a connection between precise obedience and the experience of the presence of the Lord. Now, of course, we are interested in the fact that according to verse 35, when the cloud covered the tent, 
and the glory of the Lord filled the tent, Moses was not able to enter. Why would that be? The tabernacle now was a sort of portable Sinai. All the signs and evidences of God's presence that had been on Mount Sinai are now here in the tabernacle. But Moses was invited into the presence of God on the mountain, and he had been in the presence of God in the tent of meeting. So why was he now unable to enter in? Douglas Stewart provides a very helpful explanation. He says the tabernacle was now Yahweh's house and no one else's. It was no more appropriate now for Moses to enter the tabernacle, even though he had been all through it as its building supervisor, than it would be for a house builder in modern times to retain a key and enter at will a house he had built once it was sold to its occupying owner. When the new owner enters, the new house is exclusively his, not the builder's. Later, Moses and Aaron would be able to enter the tabernacle, and provision would be made for the high priest to enter it, even the Holy of Holies, periodically. But by the present act of occupying his house through his glory and temporarily keeping all others out, God showed Moses and all Israel that the house was now his and his alone and indeed his truly and entirely, the very thing they had built it to become. Closed quote. That is the end toward which this entire story has been moving. God living in the midst of his people. God began this work by delivering them from their bondage in Egypt, and he has completed that work now by dwelling visibly and powerfully in their midst. Perhaps it was reflecting upon this story that caused the Apostle Paul to write in Philippians 1.6 that I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. The Lord finishes what he starts. There is no enemy strong enough and no sin or apostasy grievous enough to finally deter him from his glorious purpose. Thanks be to God. Pastor Paul, I want to come back to something you said near the end of the program audio there. You said there's a connection between precise obedience and the experience of the presence of the Lord. So how how does that work out in the Christian life? Because we know none of us are perfect or precise in our obedience. So does that mean we'll never be able to experience or enjoy the presence of the Lord? Yeah, that's a good question. I I think I'd want to start by saying that objectively, our access to the presence of God has been secured by the perfect and precise obedience of Jesus. That's the point being made in the book of Hebrews. In Hebrews 9.24, the apostle says, For Christ has entered, not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Now, interestingly there, the apostle says that Jesus entered the real presence of God, right? The real tabernacle, not the copy or the representation that we've been talking about here in Exodus. That that was a copy, remember, of real things in heaven. And Jesus, our high priest, has entered into that, into the real tabernacle, on the basis of his perfect and precise obedience. 
on the basis of that, he has ultimate access now. He has like the master key. You remember, Moses fell down in the story we, we read because he was overwhelmed. He could not enter even into the copy. But Jesus has entered all the way in. He has full and complete access to the real thing on our behalf. So he goes for us. So first thing I'd want to say is that if you are in Christ through faith, then you have access through Christ into the presence of God. That's an objective reality. And yet, there is a subjective reality in the here and now in terms of our experience and enjoyment of that access. Because we still battle with sin, we often feel distant from God. We often lack faith, not in God per se, but in ourselves because we know that we are not positioned to serve him in the way that we should. It's hard to pray in faith when we know that we are offline in our holiness and conduct. I'm not sure I can explain that, but I've certainly experienced that, and I see that in the pages of Holy Scripture. James, for example, says, the prayer of a righteous person has great power in its working. That's James 5.16. The Apostle John said, and this is 1 John 3.22, he said, whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. Are you seeing that? I mean, there's obviously some kind of connection between obedience and access or power or however you want to describe that, even as a Christian. There, there is a sense in which when we're out of alignment with Christ, then we're out of our experience of access. We, we struggle to take hold of things through prayer. We struggle to experience and enjoy the presence of God the way that we can and the way that we should and the way that we will if we continue to grow into the image and likeness of Christ, which, thankfully, is the work of the Spirit within us. Praise the Lord. Mm, Yeah. All right. Well, I want to turn the page here, if I can, because we are turning the page here at Life 100.3. This is our last episode in the book of Exodus. So I assume that as of next week, we'll be working our way verse by verse and chapter by chapter through a different book of the Bible. What can you tell us about that? Yeah, as of next week, we're going to be working our way through the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, I think it's helpful for us to jump back and forth from the Old Testament to the New Testament. Uh, The more we read the Old Testament, the better we're able to understand the New and vice versa. Yeah, I've loved the practice of moving back and forth like that. I feel like the things that we've talked about in Genesis and Exodus have really helped me in terms of my understanding and appreciation of the New Testament. Even what you said today about how in Revelation 21, the word for dwell is actually the word for tent, meaning it is pointing us right back to Exodus 40. I love seeing and exploring those connections. Yeah, me too. And and so hopefully that rhythm will make sense to our listeners. So yes, we'll be moving back into the New Testament, into Matthew, and working verse by verse and chapter by chapter through that. And then if the Lord tarries, uh, we'll go back into the Old Testament after that. Well, it would be great if the Lord returned before we finish the Gospel of Matthew, but if he doesn't, I'm definitely looking forward to that. Yeah, me too. All right, as always, friends, if you're looking for more Bible teaching from Pastor Paul, you can find that over at the Into the Word website at intotheword.ca, or you can download the Into the Word app at the iTunes Store or on Google Play. And don't forget to tune in to Life 100.3 next Sunday morning for the next chapter in our journey together through the whole counsel of God. We'll see you then. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. 